effort to start on time is not always easy on a Sunday, I know. Isn't it weird how during the week you can uh, be somewhere at 6 a.m. and it feels fine? And then on Sunday it takes a little tougher effort. I'm not sure why that is exactly. But today we have a lot to cover and I'm excited about this. Um, So I understand we have uh, Galatians with us as well, right? So are you well represented today or have you all taken the day off? Uh, All right. Uh, (laughs) Darletta says, I'm here, Yes. Oh, that's that's awesome. Well, glad to have you, and and um, today we'll be doing uh, the Bible survey portion, Module 2, Session 6, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We'll do all that in one shot this morning. So let's pray together, and then we'll get into this module, uh, this session. Thank you, Father, for this time to now begin to turn our hearts to Christ, turn our hearts to the God of the Bible, to forget the woes and the challenges of Monday through Saturday and to think today that this is the day that Christ was raised from the dead. This is the Lord's day. This is not just Sunday named the day, but this is the day of the Son, S-O-N. This is His day. and We devote this day to Him. We devote this day to learning more of our God and our Savior And I pray that our time this morning, both here in our Sunday school time and during our formal worship service and this evening, Lord, I pray you would so fill our hearts with the knowledge of God, with your love, with your kindness, with the the glories and the wonders and the marvels of your word, that we would love you all the more and be all the more determined to be covenant-keeping Christians as we obey you out of love for Christ. Thank you for this time. I pray it would be fruitful in our hearts and glorifying to you. In Christ's name, amen. Module 2, Session 6. We're going to do Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So we'll start with, uh, this might be a new concept to you. We're going to start with Ezra, Nehemiah. Now, why do we say those two together? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. It is viewed as one book. Um, the, the division of Ezra and Nehemiah into two books really only goes back to about the Reformation. Um, it's not that long ago, and so we prefer to keep it as Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, we don't know who the author is, but Ezra is, is pretty heavily favored. Uh, Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6, and then uh, seven, uh, part of chapter 7 is written in Aramaic, which Ezra would have been familiar with. Ezra was also a teacher of the law. He was a scribe, and so uh, he would be the, the heaviest favorite. Ezra and Nehemiah takes place over about a century. And so it would begin from the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C. What is the decree of Cyrus? That is the decree that uh, begins in the book of Nehemiah in which uh, Cyrus, the new uh, Persian emperor, Uh, not just the king, but the emperor of the entire empire, uh, decreed that any Israelite who wants to may return to their land. And at that point, the exile was sort of officially over. Um, Now, uh, in the course of the next century, uh, estimates are that only about 50,000 of them actually returned. Most of them stayed. So that's a a, a little-known fact. It's not like the whole country got up and exited like they did at the Exodus. So that's why we have a whole century here. So it goes from the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C. to the second uh, governorship of Nehemiah about 430 B.C. And at that point, historically, we're getting really close to the end of the Old Testament uh, chronologically. Now, why would uh, Cyrus make this decree? Well, there's two reasons. There's the heavenly reason and there's the earthly reason. The heavenly reason is that 150 years earlier, God decreed that this is what was going to happen. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, he names Cyrus. He says, Cyrus is the one who will free my people, which is interesting because uh, Israel wasn't in bondage yet. They weren't in exile. So that was a prophecy before there was even a need. That's the heavenly reason. The earthly reason for this decree was that the, the Persian Empire, and this really goes for all major empires in the ancient Near East, this, they had the same policy, but they had a general policy of allowing indigenous peoples to worship their own deities in their own temples, to kind of let them be who they are. Why is that? It's not because they're being nice, it's because a happy people is a submissive people. 
And so you might wonder how these empires were able to spread all over the world. Well, it, it wasn't just by force. It was, and we've talked about this before with the suzerain vassal treaties, it, it was making offers of, look, we're going to establish garrisons here. Uh, yeah, we're going to tax you a little bit, uh, but you'll be safe, you'll be protected. And you consider that uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, your little country could be overrun at any time. Uh, to have a big giant empire come in and say, we're going to provide security for you. Um, we're going to uh, give you a system of laws that's fair and equitable. To a lot of countries, that was a pretty good deal. That was like, yeah, we'll take that. So Cyrus wasn't just being nice from an earthly standpoint. He was going by the Persian Empire's uh, general policy. Because what they wanted to do is they wanted the whole world to view the Persians not as their conquerors, but as their protectors. Um, kind of sounds like a government scheme, doesn't it? Um, but that's, that's what they wanted. So that's where we are. That's just kind of the introduction to the book. Ezra and Nehemiah, what are the themes here? At the top of the list, of course, is God. And I know we could say that's the theme of every book. Um, but in this particular case, uh, God is mentioned in very specific ways. He is called the God of heaven 12 times. Now, this is very interesting because in the book of Daniel, he's called the God of heaven four times, which is significant. That's a lot. Why is that significant, though? In the Hebrew Bible, Daniel comes chronologically right before Ezra and Nehemiah. So in other words, uh, you get the knowledge of God, and then in Ezra and Nehemiah, that knowledge of God is expounded upon. And so uh, what did Daniel do? Well, Daniel was the primary instrument by which the Persians, first the Babylonians, then the Persians, he's the primary instrument by which they had a knowledge of the true and living God. That he is, he is the one that showed them who the true living God is. And you just read the book of Daniel to see that. Then under God, you have not only the God of heaven, you have the sovereign God. In Ezra, five, six, seven times. Nehemiah, uh, five, six, seven times. And here's, the, here's some of the key phrases. The hand of God. What is that? That's an uh, anthropomorphism. That's a, a, a use of a human term to illustrate something about God. God doesn't physically have a hand, but it says that he's doing something. Uh, the Lord stirred the spirit. Ezra chapter 1 says that. The eye of God uh, in Ezra 5, that speaks of, of God seeing something, making it happen by, by his vision. The Lord turned the heart. Ezra chapter 6 uh, Nehemiah 4, God frustrated some efforts. Uh, Nehemiah 6, uh, that an action comes from our God. Uh, Nehemiah 7, God put into my heart. Nehemiah chapter 13, to re- we're to remember that God is in charge. So you have all these little phrases that shows that God is sovereign, that he is completely in control. And what's the point of that? Well, God has, is fulfilling his word to rescue the exiles. And by rescuing them in a very temporal, uh, near sense, uh, you have this initial restoration. It's a miniature restoration, only a few tens of thousands ultimately returning to Israel. But a couple of things happened that give you confidence. First of all, God made it happen. There was an initial restoration. God made it happen. Second of all, um, you remember how in Israel's history, they split into a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And that was not God's will. What happens when they come back? There's no more talk of northern kingdom and southern kingdom. They're united once again. Now, is that the ultimate restoration of Israel? Uh, there are some the- theological systems that say that was it. Uh, it's never going to happen again. That's, that's kind of puny to me. But what it did do was it gave you confidence that if God can restore Israel once in sort of miniature fashion, he can do it again in totality. That's the same reason we have, for example, types of Christ in the Old Testament, that if God can do certain things through certain men, then through Christ he can do ultimately even more. So the sovereignty of God in Ezra and Nehemiah gives us confidence that God will establish the permanent kingdom of Israel someday. Then you have the theme of prayer. And I'll just mention this for a moment because prayer is not only uh, portrayed in Ezra and Nehemiah, there are actual prayers recorded. In 
uh, Ezra 8, 9, 10, Nehemiah 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 9, 13. You have these prayers. Um, and so if you're ever wanting to do a study on prayer, start with Ezra and Nehemiah and just walk your way through it. It's only a couple of dozen chapters total. So you can walk your way through and identify these prayers. Then you have the theme of covenant renewal to post-exile Israel. And how do we know that God is renewing this covenant? Well, there's several major components that come back into play now that weren't for uh, seven decades. You have the temple, the house of God in both Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, And more importantly, not only is the temple being rebuilt, the temple being uh, reestablished, everything that happens in the temple is now to be according to the law. That God is saying, I am rescuing you, but let's go back to the beginning. And so you have then also the law, you have the Levites, you have the sin of the people, talked about in Ezra 9 and 10, Nehemiah 1, 5 and 13, you have confession of sin. So how, how do we illustrate this? When uh, my boys in particular were little, if one of them, if I said, I want you to, and we'll use the classic example, I want you to clean your room, and they had uh, a little attitude or a big attitude then all kinds of horrible, terrible things would happen to them. Uh, They would be exiled uh, somewhere, maybe to the backyard, uh, maybe over my knee when I was going to spank them. And we would go through all kinds of things until I felt that their little will was broken. What would we do then? You go back to their room and you say, now, let's try this again. Go clean your room. You see, you go right back to covenant obedience. And so what God is doing with Israel is you've been in exile for three generations. You're coming back here. We're rebuilding the temple. What are we going to do now? Obey the law, offer right sacrifices, have a heart for God, and obey me as I commanded you in the law. And we're going back to it. So God is restoring his covenant with them, in, at least in temporal fashion, because how long was that going to go? That would go until 70 A.D., and in 70 A.D., then Israel as a nation ceased to exist for close to 2,000 years. What's the purpose? Short purpose. I'll read this three times for you. Uh, Yahweh has been as loyal to the Abrahamic covenant in the restoration of Israel as he had previously been in Israel's history, yet post-exilic Israel had been as disobedient to the Mosaic covenant as the previous generations of Israel Thus, the full blessings promised in the Abrahamic covenant had not come into Israel's immediate past, had not come in Israel's immediate past, but were still anticipated in the future. Let me read that one more time, then I'll walk through it with you. Yahweh had been as loyal to the Abrahamic covenant in the restoration of Israel as he had previously been in Israel's history, yet post-exilic Israel had been as disobedient to the Mosaic covenant as the previous generations of Israel Thus, the full blessings promised in the Abrahamic covenant had not come in Israel's immediate past, but were still anticipated in the future. All right, let's reword this a little bit. God gives Israel the law. The law says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And so over time, very quickly, Israel's obedience degraded. It went down. If it's a chart, it starts up here and it goes like this, like that. It gets to a certain point. Moses had already prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy that there will be a day when God exiles you. But don't worry, he'll bring you back. I, I don't think they could even comprehend that. We haven't even gotten to our home country yet. And you're already talking about exile. But they reached that point on the chart. God exiled them. Uh, After the split, 722 uh, BC, Assyria comes, sweeps away the northern kingdom. Basically, they're never heard from again. Um, 586, he comes and finally in the third attack by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, uh, sweeps away Judah. Now he brings them back and they begin, well, they start up here again. What begins to happen as you read Ezra and Nehemiah? Down they go yet again. And so what does this say? This says that that restoration was not the final restoration. It can't be 
Because as you read all of the Old Testament, as you read Zechariah 12 that promises a, a repentant heart that looks toward a Savior Messiah, as you read Isaiah that speaks in so many passages of a restored Israel, there will be a day when they begin here and for all eternity they obey perfectly and the line stays at the top. Why is that? Because God will give them a heart of flesh. They will be renewed in their spirit. An entire nation of people saved under the new covenant of Christ, obedient to the Lord in every way possible because they're glorified now. So the purpose of Ezra Nehemiah is to show that in the earthly kingdom as it is today, you cannot set up God's kingdom on earth. Did you catch that? You cannot set it up today. There has to be some major changes. Messiah has to be on the earth. Um, glorified people have to be reigning on the earth. Otherwise, the same thing just happens again and again. So at the same time, Ezra and Nehemiah simultaneously gives hope that if God can restore Israel once, he can do it again. And it also gives the reality that every time he restores Israel, uh, they just degrade again. Has, for example, uh, in, in the mid-1940s, when the nation of Israel as we know it today, was that a third restoration? Uh, sort of. And we don't see that in Scripture, but it sort of was. Is Israel today uh, representative of a country that worships Messiah? Not in the least. Now, we still defend them. We pray for them. And, and they have every right to defend themselves. Why? Because they're descended from Abraham and they're, descend, they're defending the land that was deeded to them by God. So absolutely, they have every right to defend themselves from invaders. But are they a Messiah-worshiping, rejuvenated nation? Not at all. But what do we do? We do what the Psalms say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we pray for that. So Ezra Nehemiah gives reality and it gives hope kind of at the same time. Briefly, just the literary structure, just to understand how this works. You have the return under uh, Sheshbazzar, Zerubbabel in Ezra 1 through 6. That happened early on in this history, 538 to about 515. Then you have the return under Ezra, Ezra 7 through 10, and that happened about 458 or so. <clears throat> then you have the return under Nehemiah. And understand, Ezra and Nehemiah were at different times. Um, and so you have, uh, you have uh, this understanding that they, they are not at the same time. You have the return under Nehemiah. You have the failure of the people uh, then at the, as the last part. So you have the return. Here they are up here. And where does it end in Nehemiah? The people failing. And they've come down in the chart, so to speak. Interpretive issues, I'm not going to spend uh, any time on those because all of them have to do with some minute details of chronology and names of kings, and that won't help you in your walk with Christ this day. So we won't worry about that today. I do want to just stop and slow down. We don't normally get to do this, but I want to um, walk through Nehemiah chapter 9 with you. And so, in fact, if you have your Bible, um, Nehemiah chapter 9, if you're making one note about this section of this lecture today here's the note if you want to understand the old testament in one shot nehemiah chapter 9 is the chapter it is the key to understanding the old testament um, we could even compare it i won't take time to do this but uh, it does the same similar thing that psalm 105 and 106 does psalm 105 and 106 tell the history of Israel. But since the generation of Moses, going all the way back to Moses, these people who came back, and, and I know that I just talked about the fact that they don't end well, but they started really well. But ever since Moses, there was never a generation that was so saturated in the word of God, so saturated in the Torah, in the law. In Nehemiah 9, look at the timing here. Verse 1, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, what does that say? That says that they are there in humility and in confession and in subjugation. They are humble before God. But why is the timing important? Look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Nehemiah chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters to talk about preaching the word of God because they read the entire law. They, They talked about it. They preached it. They had multiple preachers there. But look at the timing. When did they start? They started on the first day of the seventh month. Now, chapter 9, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting. What does that mean? 23 straight days of being taught the word of God all day long. Let's put that in perspective. Eight hours a day. Even if you come to church uh, twice on a Sunday, eight hours a day, one day equals a month of Sundays. So you've got 23 of those and... What does that tell you? That tells you that you have basically a couple years worth of Bible teaching in less than a month. And so they are saturated. And look at their response to hearing the word of God. Fasting, sackcloth, humility, degradation, confession, bowing before God. The people confess that the pattern of unfaithfulness has continued in their lives at the very end, and we'll walk through the chapter here in a moment, at the very end, uh, verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Oh, okay. What is the 23 days of teaching? It is covenant renewal and it is signed on the dotted line. Chapter 10 is the signature page of of the people's agreement to keep covenant with God. And it lists all these names. Now, what about understanding the whole Old Testament? I I won't read all of chapter 9. It would take too long, but let me just walk through it with you. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. That's what the word of God does to you. It makes you bare before God and you confess your sin. Verse 3, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So for three hours, they heard the word of God and for three hours, they confessed their sins. When was the last time you took more than one minute to confess sin? They took three hours. That is detail. And then you have this list on verse 4 on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, and you have this list of people. They cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so here, now they begin to praise God. And how do they praise Him? They praise Him with the history of the Bible. Verse 6, You are Yahweh, You alone, you have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Stop right there. Can you believe in evolution and truly worship God? No. You cannot believe evolution and be a worshiper of God because you are by nature denigrating the very character of God. So to say I'm a Christian evolutionist is is a contradiction in terms. Now, I'm not judging the heart of, of somebody who might be a true believer who's still struggling with evolution, but I would say this. You don't belong with the people who affirm that God is the creator. This is where they start. This is where the worship of God is founded. It is on God as creator. Then it begins the history of Israel. Verse 7, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. Right there, you have the doctrine of election. You chose Abraham. You chose him. Verse 8, you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite. And then it lists uh, all the peoples that are to be um, booted out. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. Now we skip ahead to, to the slavery time. And you heard their cry at the Red Sea. 
You have the, the signs and the wonders, verse 10, against Pharaoh and, against, and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. What was part of the purpose of the Red Sea? Verse 11, you divided the sea before them so that when they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. What was the purpose? Verse 10, to make a name for himself. It was also for the rest of time. Israel could always look back and say, we're the nation that walked through a sea. We're the nation that God rescued miraculously. We're the nation that God took the strongest army on earth and swept them away before us. Isn't that a glorious, glorious thing for them to remember? What a picture of redemption. It's not just that you are the God that uh, turned a stone into a frog. Or something silly like that. It's massive, big things. And now they're remembering this. And then verse 12, they, they highlight the presence of God. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way they should go. And then we have the giving of the law in verse 13. Verse 14, they are given the Holy Sabbath, which is the sign, it is the symbol, it is the seal of the covenant God made with Israel. You commanded them by commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. So they now have, uh, they have this covenant with God. No other people on earth had ever had a covenant in writing with God. It's phenomenal. It's unthinkable. And how did God care for them? They remind the people, verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. And I know that's hard for us to picture, but picture this, this picture that you're in a financial difficulty and you're, you have your stack of bills and you're just praying over them and, and suddenly from your ceiling fan come $100 bills. It's the same thing. A people that lives day by day by, uh, for food and wonders about this, literally they walk out and the sky rains food. Verse 16, but, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Oh, this is new information that we don't get in Exodus, that there was a faction that had a leader to try to lead some back. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and they committed great blasphemies. Verse 19, he did not forsake them even in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire never left them. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth or, or, and gave them water for their thirst. In other words, even in the midst of their rebellion, God still took care of them. Forty years, you sustained them in the wilderness. Here's an interesting detail, only said here in the Deuteronomy, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Um, we're not totally sure what it means that their feet did not swell, but have you had a set of clothes that, well, men, some of you have maybe, that lasted for 40 years? Out in your outdoors, 24 hours a day, and your clothes never wear out, and all you're doing is walking, and your sandals that are homemade never wear out. Food's falling from the sky. The Spirit of God is there to instruct them, which, which implies that there were still Bible teachers who were teaching the law of God to his people. Moses, of course, at the top of that list. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of Og. Those are the first two little conquests. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. What does that remind you of? God's promise to Abraham. And you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. I, I mean, have you ever been, have you ever gone to a restaurant and gotten a free dessert on your birthday? Don't you just feel like you won the lottery? They got a free country. And basically God said, go, take your farms, take your ranches, bring your livestock. You're set up because he loves them. Verse 24, so the descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand. 
with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities and the rich land took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled. Look, this isn't, this isn't coming to a blank piece of land. This isn't the American dream of going to a blank piece of land and over the course of decades building something up. They walked into something that already existed. They went into a house with stocked refrigerators, so to speak. It was handed to them by a gracious and loving God. And what happens to us when we feel our life is going so well The end of verse 25. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And again, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. Oh, it gets a little more serious now. And killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. In the days of Moses, they complained against Moses. In this day, they killed the prophets of God. Verse 27, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercy, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. What is that? That's the time of the judges. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried you from heaven, you heard, cried you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 29, he warned them, turn back to the law, turn back. They had seen this over and over and over again for three centuries during the time of the judges that rebellion always leads to pain. And yet God was merciful, but he warns them. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Well, I tell you what, as a pastor, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. There are certain things I preach until I'm blue in the face. And then you still see people on the fringe who just won't heed the instruction. They just won't. And it just boggles the mind. This This is these men here preaching to all of Israel saying, remember what your fathers did over and over again? Verse 32 Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people until the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Now they're in prayer, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. This is a people who is humble. No excuses. And here's the irony. The men who are now representing this generation of Israel, they're not the ones who did this. They're confessing on behalf of their fathers. But what's the warning? Why go through all of this history? What's the saying about history? That those who don't know it are doomed to what? Repeat it. And so that's why history is here. Well, what did they do? Remember, they started here on the chart and they went down again. And this time, ultimately, the ultimate culmination would be 400 years of difficulty, civil war, pain, death, until the Roman Empire comes and finally Israel would seal their long-term discipline by doing what? By rejecting the Messiah of God. Theoretically, and this is a long talk for another time, theoretically, had Jesus ridden into Israel Jerusalem and all of Israel bowed before him and humbled themselves and said you are our king we worship you you are the Messiah we confess our sins before you theoretically Christ would have established his kingdom at that point but they didn't they rejected him and on the way to the cross some of the women were weeping and what did Jesus say in the gospel of Luke he said don't weep for me Weep for you and for your children because not long from now, every stone's going to be taken down and it happened 35 years later. Jerusalem was destroyed. They wouldn't return for centuries and centuries. And even now, Israel is still blinded. Romans 9, 10, and 11 tells us this. So 
You want to understand the point of the Old Testament? Nehemiah 9 will do it for you. Sorry, that took a little longer than I anticipated, but it's a fabulous chapter. All right. Switch gears. Esther. Now, what's interesting about Esther is that while all this return from exile stuff is happening over here in Israel, Esther is happening with people who elected to stay. Where right now, these two things happening basically simultaneously, where are the majority of the Jews? Most of them are still in the Persian Empire. There are very few of them overall in Israel. So, um, so God is not just concerned with those few tens of thousands that returned. He's concerned with the, the millions that are still in Persia. And that brings us to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, uh, general agreement all across the board on the title of the book. But the main human character is not really Esther. The main human character is Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai, uh, Esther plays the role between the king and Mordecai. Uh, We don't know who the author is. The best candidates are Mordecai, uh, Esther's uh, relative, Ezra or Nehemiah. The dates of the events, 483 B.C., to 473 B.C. We have this down pretty pretty pat over a 10-year period. And again, this is happening in the midst of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are the Jews who didn't return with the others. And what was their problem? Why didn't they return? Because they were very, very Persian. This is the second and third generation of, of people there. And, and if you've uh, been around uh, immigrants to the United States, for example, um, I've had, I had the joy during seminary to minister in two different uh, ethnic churches. And there were always the generation problems. You had the older generation that had come to America 40, 50 years ago, and their grandchildren now don't know the language, and their grandparents are lamenting the fact that they're way more American than they are Korean or Chinese or whatever, and that, and that was a genuine issue. And so part of the ministry was to try to bring them together and have unity and have love. But this is the same thing. Why would... These, many of whom had been born in the Persian Empire, why would they want to return to a country they'd never seen? They had no desire. So almost all of them stayed. And so the Jews were much more Persian at this point, which is a concern. Historical and theological themes. You probably know this one. This is the most famous uh, Bible trivia fact about the book of Esther, and that is that the name of God is never mentioned. In the book of Esther, in fact, some have said, well, maybe it shouldn't be part of the Bible because God isn't mentioned. No, the whole point of the book of Esther is that God is, God's name isn't mentioned because the book of Esther is basically about the providence of God, that he works behind the scenes in ways that we can't see or fathom. And so God works behind the scenes to accomplish his will. There's no mention of uh, Palestine or Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, the law, no mention of prayer. What does this tell us? This tells us that God is working on Israel's behalf despite the lackluster spirituality of all the main characters. There's nobody in the book of Esther that you would just say, I really want to model my life after that person. And we'll talk about that more in detail in a moment. But this is very comforting to me that if I'm walking with the Lord in less than honorable fashion, he's still working in my life. Um, He might work a little more discipline in than perhaps I was planning on. But he's still there. He's still working behind the scenes. You have the theme of the reversal of human plans. Chapter 4, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Really, many say this is the theme of the book. That God overthrows the plans of man. Um, Chapter 6 is a great example. Haman, the second in command of all the kingdom, was supposed to be honored. And who gets honored instead? It's Mordecai, this lowly Jew. You have this reversal of plans. You have the theme of the Jews. Forty-four times. This is central focus to the book. You have the hatred and fear of the Jews. Chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 8. This has been all through history. I mean, you have this today. You have have, uh, congressmen and women of the United States of America expressing uh, anti-Semitism and nobody calls them on it. Fear of the Jews, not supporting Israel. It's unbelievable. 
Those who say they're woke need to be awakened to the truth. So there's a hatred and fear of the Jews. Uh, The Persian Empire covered all of the known world. So you remember I showed you that 50,000 Jews or so over here in Israel, the rest are over here in Persia. Well, guess what? Israel is still part of the Persian Empire. And so the decree to kill all the Jews would have meant an army marching on Jerusalem as well. It would have meant all the surrounding neighbors could all sharpen their axes and spears and go and kill Jews legally. This is the first Nazi regime. It was the first time that it was like across the whole world, everybody could have a day where their sport that day would go, let's go kill Jews. And so this wasn't, it wasn't like those in Israel were safe. And so what was happening over here in the capital of the Persian Empire was super important around the known world. So you have the hatred and fear of the Jews. You also have the deliverance of the Jews as a major sub-theme, chapter 4, chapters 8 and 9. Based on the Abrahamic covenant, Mordecai knows that the Jews will be delivered whether or not Esther participates. He believes that they will be delivered. Then you have the theme of the major characters. You have King Ahasuerus. He's self-centered. He's impressionable. He is uh, all about himself. He is the king of the greatest empire in the world, but he's proud. He's easily manipulated. He's arrogant. Then you have Haman. This man who's vindictive, he's crafty, he's proud. He'll do anything for power. He claims to care about people, but he'll do anything for power. The temptation to go on the rabbit trail on that topic is overwhelming, but we'll leave it there. You have Mordecai, a humble Jew who is dedicated to the welfare of the Jews. He loves his people. And he understands that they're a separate people. They're not Persian. And then you have Esther, who is beautiful, she's courageous, she's wise, she's prudent. And so those are the main characters. So what is the the purpose of the book? This is very encouraging to us. While the physical seed of Abraham, meaning physical Jews, the physical seed of Abraham was not faithful to Yahweh, they were still sovereignly protected by God from Gentile attack. And really, the interesting thing is, remember I said a moment ago that Prayer is never mentioned. Uh, there's a mention of fasting, and the assumption maybe is that prayer goes with that, but it is, not, it is not by accident that prayer is not mentioned. In other words, God is answering prayers that aren't being offered. He is answering prayers not based on the current situation. He's answering, if you want to call it prayer or lack of prayer, he's answering the Abrahamic covenant because 1,500 years earlier, he promised Abraham that your people will go on forever. And so he's, um, he is going by his covenant. Uh, that's very encouraging to me as a new covenant Christian that when I'm having a day that is less righteous than another, that I don't fear that God is going to do, revoke his covenant with me. That his covenant with me stands because of Christ. Very briefly on the literary structure. You have from Vashti to Esther. Vashti, the, the first wife of the king. You have a royal edict and two feasts. Then you have from Haman to Mordecai, another royal edict and two feasts. And you have from calamity to good for the Jews, you have another royal edict and two feasts. And then a bonus feast, now you have the, the Feast of Purim. And this is the only uh, feast that's added later in the law of God that uh, isn't found in Deuteronomy or in uh, Leviticus. So there's the literary structure. It's, it's around edicts and feasts. And that's kind of the, uh, Esther would actually make a terrific play. It would, it would work well on the stage because you could have lots of good props with uh, throne rooms and food and things like that. So it's, a, it's very dramatic. A couple of interpretive issues. What is the literary genre of Esther? And you might say, well, who cares about that stuff? That's stuff I learned in 11th grade English and I don't care about that. Well, it's a big deal because there are many who argue that Esther is complete fiction. That it's just a made up story. Now, let me ask you this. What gives you more confidence in the providence of God? The evidence of the providence of God lived out in real life or some story somebody makes up? to show you that God is sovereign. Somebody, some story somebody makes up has no bearing on that whatsoever. 
And in fact, it can't be complete fiction because the Hebrew mind found fiction abhorrent. They considered a fictional story a lie. It was a waste of time. Uh, see also, don't waste your time on Christian romance novels. They're, they're bogus. It's fiction. What the Hebrew mind felt was that real life is the only thing that should ever be written about. Because it's, it's real. Others say it's historical fiction. That it's a novel um, that's based in history. Well, if that's true, then it would be the only one in all of history. There is no such genre as historical fiction in, the, in, in Jewish writings. The only other option then is that it is historical narrative. We know it's historical narrative from a, a particular little grammatical uh, issue. There's the use of something called the Wayak Tol or the Wow Consecutive. It's a little tiny mark in Hebrew that begins sentences. And it's a, it's a past tense historical narrative. Let me tell you how important the Wow Consecutive or the Wayak Tol is in narrative. Um, when I was taking Hebrew exegesis, we had an exam that took an hour and a half on just the importance of the Wayak Tol. And what does it mean here? What does it mean here? What does it mean here? What does it mean when it's not present? Well, what it means when you have Wayaktol, it's just a little mark. It's just a little one letter um, before a sentence. You have, and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, over and over again. What does that say? And this happened. It's real. In the Jewish mind, if you use Wayaktol and it's fiction, you're a liar. So you only use it for truth. So we take Esther as absolutely historical. Two other interpretive issues. One that may or may not have bearing on your life and one, if you have daughters, has big bearing on your life. We'll do the first one. What's the nature of Mordecai? Is he a spiritual or unspiritual Jew? Well, Esther doesn't contain a full biography of Mordecai, so you can't really uh, make a definite conclusion, but we do know this. He is a, you might call this, a less-than-Torah-keeping Jew. Uh, in our terms, we would call him a cultural Christian, somebody who likes the church and likes Christians, but also is pretty entrenched in the world, and it's hard to tell the difference. Um, how do we know this? Because he's willing to let his relative Esther live completely as a Persian, and he doesn't encourage her to make her identity known until absolutely necessary. Can you imagine telling your children, hey, live like the world, and if absolutely necessary, tell people you're a Christian. So, not super impressive. Uh, Mordecai is vastly different than Daniel and his three friends who sought to keep their Jewish identity and obey the law. They were willing to suffer death rather than compromise. Mordecai was more of a, a fly-under-the-radar kind of a guy. But he is definitely a Jewish patriot. Even fly under the radar Christians, if the church of Jesus Christ is attacked, a lot of them will come out of the woodwork and say, hey, wait a minute, that's my church. He's concerned about the well-being of Jews, but this doesn't mean that his response is a a law-directed response, a Torah-directed response. If his response to the well-being of the Jews was directed by the law, it would mean he puts on sackcloth and ashes and publicly cries out to God in the public square. But he didn't do that. He flew under the radar and he used some, some trickery a little bit to try and get Esther in there and say, hey, maybe you can do something for us. But in his case, there's no recorded prayer. There's no repentance. There's no cry for deliverance. There's no dropping to his knees and saying, we deserve this. God, would you rescue us despite our sinfulness? So, is he spiritual or unspiritual? Eh, we would call him nominal. Now, here's the one if you have daughters. <clears throat> I saw a Bible study once, a little booklet years ago, and the title of it was, B and Esther. Really? What is the nature of Esther? Is she a spiritual or unspiritual Jew? Here are the facts. Esther went into the king's chamber unmarried as a virgin, and she did not emerge as a virgin. It's very clear from the text, at least in, in discrete terms. The king of the whole world is not going to have a young woman come into his chamber all night long to play checkers. That's not going to be the case. Now, I remember 
my dad telling me this story when I was a kid. We were driving late at night and he told the whole book of Esther. He loved Esther. And when he came to this part, he called it a beauty contest. And so for years, I thought, well, what's wrong with Esther? They had a beauty contest. This wasn't a beauty contest. This was a sexuality contest. We also see that she fasted, but her fast wasn't based in Scripture. The only fast required in the law was the Day of Atonement. So for Esther, it's very possible that her fasting was more of a, I wonder if I can manipulate God, or I wonder if I can make God do what I want. Um, So Esther is not the model young woman. Definitely she was used by God, definitely courageous, definitely um, brave, But why was she able to become the queen of the Persian Empire? Because she was so completely Persian. She was just like her culture. She was just like her society. So just to be clear, Esther is in the Bible to be a role model for the fact that God uses sinners in his providence despite their sinfulness. She is not there to be a model for young women. You want to read a book of the Bible that is a model for young women? You read Ruth. And in fact, a, a uh, comparison of Esther and Ruth makes a much more interesting study than trying to somehow make Esther a model woman. There's not much about her to model your lives after. So if you have daughters, you tell them, praise God for Esther, but don't be her. Be a Ruth. I think that's a good lesson for us. Well, we got through those three slash two books of the Bible, however you want to view them, and we'll pray and be done. Thank you, Father, for... Uh, the information we've sifted through today, it's a lot and we understand that. But I pray, Lord, that each person here and each one listening to this, as they read Ezra and Nehemiah, as they read Esther, would have a greater understanding in Ezra and Nehemiah of the hope that you give of a future kingdom on earth with a messianic king. And with Esther, that you are a God of providence who has saved your people. You will continue to do so. And even now, you are saving uh, those that would cry out to Christ in repentance. You are saving the elect day by day. You are accomplishing your kingdom purposes. And so we find that hope in Esther. Even when it seems that we cannot see your hand, yet you move behind the scenes with great power, great determination, and great purpose. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.